Yeah, take a seat. Well, I'm mindful uh, that some perhaps don't have not been following through this series, uh, so it might seem a little bit odd as we get to the to verse 17. So let me just quickly give you a a, a recap of what's um, what we have been considering over the last few weeks in the, in this our series uh, in one Samuel, particularly the segment that. Uh, deals with uh, Saul's rise uh, to, to, to kingship. We have been studying um, this un unjust and sinful request on the part of the Israelites to have a king. And we saw, didn't we, that uh, uh, from chapter 8, it wasn't necessarily wrong to have a desire for a king. In fact, if you're a, a God-fearing Israelite, if you're a, uh, one of those who, uh, Israelites that are, that are looking forward to, to, to the coming of the seed of the woman, in, in a sense, you would be expecting a king. You would be asking the Lord for a king. That is clear because... The, the, the prophecy of kingship and the, and the, the, the desire and the, the plan of God to have a kingship established in Israel uh, is there even from the time of the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 17 already prescribed uh, a set of rules for the king to obey. So the desire to have a king was not necessarily wrong. The request, no, the request for a king was not necessarily wrong, but the reality is that the Lord looks at the heart. And as we've seen, the, the motivation of the heart of the Israelites, as it, it is clear, uh, in fact, from the Lord's own testimony as he speaks to Samuel, was one that was sinful, was a desire to replace God and establish in, in God's place a man. So there, let's make no mistake, there is a, a clear uh, sinfulness in the request. And part of what we've been looking at in, from chapter 8, chapter 9, even the, uh, as we got to the beginning of chapter 10, was the providential hand of God in the midst of all of this. That God, notwithstanding the sinfulness of the people, God is still working in, in, mercy, in mercy towards them. He's still acting as their God, even though they are rejecting him. And in fact, he is still ordering, orchestrating the events for the good of the people notwithstanding their sinfulness and, their, uh, and the judgment that will come upon them. And we saw, didn't we, especially in that passage when, when um, Samuel tells the people the manner of the king, how the king will take this and take that, and how the king will take your, your, the best of your, of your livestock, how he will force you to go into battle. And we saw the contrast between this and God's ultimate king, one that does not take away but gives freely. But the most important point that we've considered up until this, or the, the one ta big takeaway that we've considered from chapter 8, 9, and 10 is God's providence. God's providential movement throughout history and throughout this, these human events, ordering things for, the, for his glory and for the benefit of his people. And the, the main takeaway for us is that we too live under God's providential Sovereignty. He is still Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, the Lord who orders things. And even though our lives may seem ordinary at times, and I, I don't like the term ordinary that much, but even though our lives might seem common and uneventful, we know that we are a part of this extraordinary work that God is doing. That God 
is guiding us providentially, uh, sovereignly, to accomplish those good works that he has appointed for each and every one of us. That's the, the sentiment of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, where he says that we are his workmanship, we are, his, we are fashioned by him, created uh, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But today we're going to go a little bit uh, aside from this providence of God, although there is still a little bit of that that we'll see, but I want to focus particularly on another element that, it, that springs forth to us as we consider this passage, which, which is the necessity of the word of God. We, we will consider the truth that no matter what stage of life we are, in what position we occupy, uh, what circumstances we find ourselves in, the Christian, the, the son of God, is maintained, is begotten and maintained and kept and ultimately advanced by the word of God alone. Our forefathers in the faith, our, our particular Baptist forefathers in the Confession of Faith of 1689, they, they said that Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient and certain and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And today we'll, we'll be looking at the element of God's word as it uh, impacts this episode before us and try and draw some lessons for ourselves. So firstly, we see the relentless uh, aspect or the relentless uh, force of the word of God. Particularly in verse 17 through to the beginning of verse 19. That's the first point we'll consider. That God's word, even though uh, as is being constantly rejected, God's word never fails Never is never defeated in its purpose, and that God, through his word, always speaks clearly to the needs, the situation of the people. Again, the people were sinning in wanting a king, in wanting, not a king, in wanting to replace God for a man. This is idolatry. In fact, that, this is the idolatry that will eventually lead to the captivity in Babylon. Theirs was that this sin. So Samuel calls this assembly, and this is rather surprising because we are moving now from the, the private anointing of, uh, of Saul to this public proclamation of Saul as the king. Um, but, and, and Samuel calls this holy gathering, and it's surprising for us because when we think of coronation ceremonies, when we think of uh, installation ceremonies, of the proclamation of a king, we think of a joyous occasion. We think of a moment that, that uh, oh, dearly beloved, we're gathered together here in this wonderful moment to, to see the, the new king that God has called. But it's not the case here. Can you imagine that happening in, at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II? Instead of this joyous occasion, the, whoever was the Archbishop of, of Canterbury at the time, whoever was the religious leader of the Church of England, uh, dropping this, this rebuke over everyone. This is basically what's happening here. Samuel begins this meeting that is supposed to be a joyous one by rebuking the people. Why did it have to begin on such a negative note? Well, because they were in sin. And perhaps there was still a hope in Samuel's heart that they would repent. Repent. 
In fact, the place where they are, Mizpah, that where this is taking place, look at there verse 17, they, they are gathering together, this holy assembly is gathering together at Mizpah. But Mizpah uh, is a, a place where they had already repented in the past. Samuel Sam, in 1 Samuel 7, the people gathered at Mizpah as they were about to face the Philistines for the second time after having been so uh, tragically defeated, so clearly defeated the first time around, and they repented there. They confessed their sins. Perhaps Samuel was still withholding some hope. They will repent. But what we know is that God knows the end from the beginning, and God is rebuking them here because God's word is relentless. He rebukes them because he knows that they need to hear this rebuke. And listen to the words. We, let's read them again, just so it sinks in for us. I brought you up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all the, uh, your adversities and tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. And Samuel says, now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Uh, if this was Paul, he probably Paul would have turned to the to the. Bear with me with this uh, hypothetical. But if if this was Paul uh, speaking to the Israelites, he would have probably spoken with the same harshness that he spoke to the Galatians uh, when he wrote the letter. All foolish Israelites, who has bewitched you that you thus disobey and replace God's presence and God's kingship with the kingship of a man? Who has fooled you into thinking these things? Why? Do you want a king? Why? You have God as your king. That's what Samuel is saying. You have no more perfect king than God. No other nation can boast of the privilege of having the almighty God, the only God, as their king. Do you want deliverance? Do you, what deliverance do you want more than the deliverance that God has already given you? He redeemed you out of slavery from Egypt. You want a savior. God has been your savior all, the, all along. And he has promised to send the perfect savior, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, the Christ who is to come. Israel had forgotten all the blessings by now and went after their earthly desire. How ironic it is that they were doing this, this forgetting and rejecting the kingship of God precisely at Mizpah. You remember what happened in chapter 7, that famous verse that so often is quoted at the ending of every year. Thus far the Lord has helped us. When the, the Ebenezer was set, it was there, just outside of Mizpah. And yet the Ebenezer that was set for their remembrance was forgotten. They rejected it. Not not too dissimilar from what Esau said, uh, did in his own days when he sold his birthright, when he despised, actually that's how the scripture speaks of, he despised his birthright because he was pursuing earthly desire, because he wanted earthly success, because he wanted something more. He wanted a dish, of, a plate of lentils. A commentator says that Esau was a success in the world and he was a failure with God. How clearly this is the case with the Israelites here. 
They were substituting God, or they were trying to substitute God, their inheritance for worldly leadership. And God is confronting them with this great sin. And God is calling them to repentance. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, I wonder how often do we place the expectation of, on man instead of God? How often we, we have this same attitude? We wouldn't be so crass as to say that we are rejecting God. Neither were the Israelites. They were very happy in keeping God, Jehovah, uh, as, as their deity. But they wanted something more on the secular realm. They wanted something more uh, uh, to be able to be in the, uh, in the company of the other nations. How often we behave like that. As God's people, we are called to serve and to trust first and only and foremost and really only God as the one true king, as our eternal God. So in the midst of this joyous occasion, we find Samuel faithful as well. And this should teach us as well the, the posture of Samuel, this old man which we uh, have seen through these 10 chapters go from a young man in the, in the temple, hearing the voice of God uh, in the days of Eli the priest, to now an old man, and he is still the same zealous, uh, the same zealous uh, individual for the things of God. He's not uh, watering down the message. He's not uh, dumbing it down. He's not uh, trying to not seem too harsh because the, the, the people may not take it so nicely. No, he says it as it is. He cuts through the excitement of the day, through the whatever uh, is the expectations of what's going to happen in the, in the people's hearts, and he says it as God intended it to be said. Not pulling back any punches. He was faithful. And you see, that's what we need as well. We need faithfulness over cordiality. We need to be cordial. We need to be civil. We need to be uh, nice to one another. We need to uh, do our best to live at peace with everyone. But we don't compromise on our faithfulness to God. Truth over civility. As Martin Luther once said, peace with all, but the truth above all things. I'm paraphrasing here. But that's the, the, the reality. Israel, if Israel is rejecting the God who saved them from Israel, if Israel is, is rejecting the God as their king, they need to repent. We cannot just expect Samuel to put on a smile and, and go with the flow and follow through whatever procedure was expected for that day. No, Samuel will speak clearly. Samuel will not go, oh, so good to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming. We're, we're brought together because we're, we're uh, about to have our new king, or our first king to, uh, being nominated. No, he speaks clearly. And throughout history, that I had a couple of examples that I could be, uh, bring, but throughout history, we see this, that true uh, men and women of God, they, they don't compromise on God's truth in order to have the 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 graces of the people. Israel's God loves them too much to be nice to them at this moment. God loves them too much to be nice to them at this moment. And it's the same thing with us. 
just like a parent seeing a, a child uh, about to to do something really stupid will will be forceful and clear and will allow will not allow the message to be misunderstood if he's about to cross the road into oncoming tra traffic the, the the parent if he's a good parent nowadays it's up for grabs if if someone would actually uh, do this but if he's a good parent he will not want the message to be misheard he will cry out danger stop he will not go, sorry, no, he will say it as it is, relentlessly, until the child hears it. And it's the same thing with us, or it's the same thing with God towards us. If we are in error, God will time and time again relentlessly tell us. If we are truly his, it's a love that will not let us go. He may even ruin a nice occasion for us in order for him to be heard just like he did for the Israelites. It is in the nature of God. It is in the nature of God to be relentless in his pursuit of wandering sheep like we are at times. And this is God's great mercy. And it's throughout the, the Old Testament. Jeremiah speaks so clearly of this. Jeremiah, who had a ministry of telling the people time and time again the same message, yet with them, with them not hearing, like Isaiah will speak and, the, and no one will listen. Jeremiah 25 says, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year. I'm not going to do the maths now, but in which the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. For years, God has relentlessly pursued and God is like this. And he goes on to say, repent now everyone of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. And at this point, the question for us is, is there a point in my life where God has been relentlessly speaking to me, and yet I'm still like these stiff-necked people of, uh, of Samuel's day rejecting, or of Jeremiah's day not hearing? What does this say? But that's what happen what's happening here. I don't know the tone that Samuel used. I, I said jokingly, in a, or they said uh, hypothetically, that he probably spoke like Paul, but we don't know if he was uh, sweet or if he was uh, forceful, if he was shouting it, if he was, uh, had this somber demeanor. We don't, we're not told. But I can imagine that it, it was weighty, the way that he said it. And I can imagine that he briefly paused, having said this, hoping in his heart of hearts that perhaps some among the people would see the doom uh, spelled uh, before them and they would repent like they did years before in 1 Samuel 7. And yet they didn't. And it's significant. Verse 19, 20, and 21, we see, we see this, this significance. And I, I won't dwell much here because I, I need to be mindful of the time. Uh, I, I tend to overshoot with, uh, with Samuel, but it's significant, the process that is about to unfold here. First of all, the significance of Samuel just rebuked the people, and normally when a prophet rebukes the people, what comes after the rebuke is what? Therefore, this is go what's going to happen to you. And what happens after the rebuke? 
the election, the, the, the casting of the lots. That's what, it, what the language here is. In fact, if you go to the AV or some other translations, it speaks that there were this, this language of causing the tribes to come near, uh, come near and, uh, and Benjamin was chosen. It's the process of casting lots. That's what happening, what's happening here. What is significant is that in this context, the casting of lots happens exactly after the, the rebuke of Samuel, the rebuke of God to Israel. You would expect the, the consequences, the judgment to come after, leaving one to imply that actually this casting of lots is their judgment. And again, for any Israelite that knew their history, the casting of lots was not something to look forward, especially with all the tribes present, was not something fun. The only other time, at least in recorded history, that this happened, you know when it was in Judge, uh, Judges 7, when Achan uh, sinned, they called all the tribes of Israel together and through the casting of lots, they found the sinner. The casting of lots was more associated by this time and in history with judgment than actually with, with, uh, with uh, good things. And God permits this to happen. And Samuel's selection is inserted in this point where we would expect a, a, a judgment. And sometimes God's most severe judgment is not uh, something that we would immediately perceive as judgment. Many times God's most severe judgment to us, most severe chastisement in New Testament language, most severe discipline to us is to allow us, to allow us to have exactly what we want, to live out the consequences, to permit us to sin and to see the consequences of that sin to its fruition in our day-to-day -day lives. It wasn't Saul so much that was being punished, but I think it's clear that here the people are being punished by Saul becoming their king. In fact, I don't think it is even a, a, a leap. You turn to Hosea, uh, uh, chapter 13, and, and God clearly says there that he gave them, the Israelites, a king in his anger. That God gave the Israelites, and I believe it's speaking here of, of, of uh, Saul, that God gave the king in his anger and that he took him away in his wrath. Hosea 13, 11, if you want to check that reference later. But there is also a second element in this casting of lots. It's the element that God wanted to make sure that clearly the, the nomination of, of, uh, uh, of Saul was not perceived to be a, uh, some kind of uh, favor on the part of Samuel. It was through the casting of lots. Every single Israelite, every single Israelite man of military age probably was uh, open or was uh, possible but through the casting of lots we find that the choice ends in Saul telling us clearly that it was God choosing Saul as king from a man's point of view each tribe has been equal in this decision and yet from God's standpoint it was him that determined that Proverbs, Solomon, in Proverbs says, the lot therefore is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Then in the drawing of lots, the tribe is chosen significantly. I don't think uh, um, 
it's uh, it's some I don't think it's inconsequential. He was the smallest of tribes by this time. Benjamin, as we spoke a few weeks ago, uh, Benjamin had been laid waste in the civil war that happened because of Benjamin's sinfulness. And Benjamin had been decimated. He was small and, and, and puny and, and weak. Again, showcasing this uh, design of God time and time again that he chooses the weak to confound, confound the, the, the strong. He, 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 he chooses the the. the, the the, the foolish to shame the wise. And yet when we come to verse 21, we see, um, we see something unusual. We see a, a, an element that, uh, that kind of caught, uh, catches us off guard. Here's the problem. Saul is chosen, but Saul is nowhere to be found. And again, the significance of this uh, finding and not finding this lost uh, um, undercurrent and theme through these uh, through these three chapters, time and time again uh, through these three chapters, it's it's the story of of something that was lost. It's the story of Saul not even able to finding the three lost donkeys, and now Israel is not able to find their king. How does a king get lost? He's hiding. And many commentators, and, uh, and I, I'm not saying that they're necessarily wrong. They see uh, Saul's hiding as a, a mark of his humility. They see it as a, a, a sign of his, um, com uh, they commend him for hiding, that he didn't want to rise to this, to this point. But I think that's, that's, uh, that's giving him too much credit. That's giving him to, to give, too, that's giving him too much credit. Because in my opinion, what is clearly seen here is already that, that, that um, demeanor that will eventually lead to his downfall. What am I saying? Is that Saul's downfall, as we all know, was disobedience to the word of God. God tells him something and he chooses to do something else. That's what's going to lead to his downfall. And yet that's, that's clearly what's happening here already. God had already told him clearly that he was to be the king. Not only he told him through Samuel, and that should have been enough, but God even gave him uh, signs. And that's, I think, why the, the significance of the signs in, uh, in, in, in chapter um, 10 gave him signs that were, would put beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was at work. If that was not enough, now the, cast were, the, the, the lot was cast and it fell upon him. Let there be no doubt. And yet he seems to be doubting it. He seems to be unwilling to obey what has been clearly and perfectly revealed to him. His reasoning is not so much important, but it is his action is. He's clearly been told that he is to be the king and yet he resists the, rev the revelation. And this would be the, the, the thing that would le lead to the downfall. This would be the sin that would repeatedly come up again in Saul's life. Let us not be too judgmental on Saul. Because we too are like that. We hide ourselves 
We, we, we know the clear revelation of God's word, but yet we prefer, we prefer to, to, to go our own way, to make our own decisions. We try to hide from our duty and from our, from our obligation to God and to his kingdom. And we offer all kinds of excuses, and some of them on the, uh, on the, uh, on the outside, they might really seem to be uh, reasonable. But reality is that we're being rebellious. May God help us to respond to his commands, to his revealed word, exactly like Isaiah the prophet did. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening, like Samuel did. Because we are dependent on God's word. And that's what we see in verse 22. Just like the Israelites were dependent on God's word for everything. Even, even to find their lost king. This ironic situation where they finally get their king. And yet they're still dependent on God to point out where the king is. He could not find the donkeys. Israel could not find. They were helpless to find their new king. This is the extent of the dependence of the people of God upon God. Does that mean for us that we are dependent on him for everything? Yes. Honestly, yes. And the only reason why sometimes we don't realize that and we don't uh, understand that is because we are too self-absorbed to realize that we wouldn't even get up in the morning from bed. We wouldn't be able to tie our shoelaces in the morning. We wouldn't be able to, to, to do anything without him. We're totally dependent on him. Of course we are. We are spiritually dependent on him. We are physically dependent on him. If he's not for us, we, if he removes himself from the picture completely, if that were possible for him, if he removed himself from the picture, everything would crumble and fall. Even in the simplest of matters. We are not as powerful or as wise or as intelligent or as, as self-sufficient or as independent or as, or as strong or as anything that, as we think. Christ emphasized this time and time again in his ministry. As he speaks to the Christians, to the church, he says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. He speaks in, uh, through Paul. In the letter to the Romans, that when we were without strength in the time, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why we, we, we were without strength? We read that every Christian is helpless without Christ. For without me, you can do nothing. Oh, that's certainly hyperbole on the part of Jesus. No, it's not. It's cold, hard truth. That's why we should spend our time in prayer. Because if we truly understand how desperate a situation we are, unless God works, if we truly understood that without him we can do nothing, we would be desperate in our prayers. In fact, we wouldn't even be able to pray without him. We are even dependent on him for our prayers because the spirit of Christ helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for us uh, as we ought but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is what we are. Dependent. Just like the Israelites, even to find their king after they have them. 
I won't go too much into the detail. I need to 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 close uh, of the of them finding. I just find it a, a wonderful, humorous uh, situation where they uh, they find him in the midst of the equipment, the luggage, whatever the, the translation you prefer there, and he's taller than everyone. But it's all externals, and that's the problem. It's all externals. Let me just say this from verse 25, and uh, we'll end. Um, just by bringing this together um, uh, with a conclusion. We need God's word. We need God's love. Look at verse 25, 1 Samuel chapter 10. I've just turned there. I've been turning up and down. And on chapter 10, it says that then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And, so, uh, and Saul went just on a smaller side. Isn't it interesting that he's just been proclaimed king? He's just been received by the people? Some rebellious ones haven't, but we'll, that's um, something to consider in a moment. But he's just been received as a king. Isn't it interesting that Samuel still, as the prophet of God, as the man, the representative of God in Israel, still holds sway, uh, still orders Saul around? And because the reality is this. Yeah, you might be the king. You might have been crowned. I don't, I don't think there was a crown at the time. There's no mention of it. You might have might been... You, might have been proclaimed as king. But bear, make no mistake, even though the people have rejected God, just like we saw last week that Saul was made king or prince over God's inheritance, it's still God's inheritance. Uh, make no mistake about it. Here again, it's emphasized. This is not the ways of the king. This is not the behavior of the king. It's the behavior of royalty. Telling royalty, telling Saul that it, even though he's now a king, he is still under the law of God. This is not for the people. This is for King Saul to know. You are still under the obligation to live in accordance with the will of God. Samuel was placing the new institution, this monarchy, just newly founded monarchy, under the authority of God's word. It was not the authority of the king over the law or over the people that was emphasized here and now, but rather the authority of God's word over the king. This passage has been so significant. This passage and its um, parallel passage in Deuteronomy 17 just for you to understand how significant he has been historically. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, he once alluded to this passage when he was advocating for Queen, Queen Mary, the Queen, or Mary, the Queen of Scots, to be put on trial because of murder and adultery. And his argument was, just like in the days of Saul, the law is above the king. The king is not above the law. Samuel Rutherford, he also used this passage in Deuteronomy 17, probably the same passage that Samuel uses here, to advocate, not hex lex, uh, king over the law, but to advocate that the law lex, uh, rex, I know it's, it's confusing in the Latin, but to advocate that the law is over the kingdom. 
that God is over the king. As Samuel Rutherford was asserting that the kings of Scotland did not have the right to make laws that were contrary to what scripture uh, declares. The, the kings cannot behave lawlessly. Historically as well, this passage was used by, by the founding fathers in, the, in America. And I'm, I won't get into the discussion whether they were right in, in, uh, in rebelling. I think that's a, a very difficult uh, subject. But they use this passage to, to say that there should be a, um, that they were justified in rebelling against the authority of the king because the king had broken his covenant uh, with God. He was not acting under the, the biblical definitions. It was, he was outside of God's law. I know it's a big argument there, and perhaps it's still sensitive to some of the uh, uh, English people, but although nowadays I, I, I think people would be happy to live the Americans where they are uh, with all their confusion, but that's, that's another thing. But what is clear in this passage is that Saul is under the authority of God's word. In fact, Saul is not so much a, a king, although he bears the title of king, he is a vice-regent. He is a, a, a vicarious king. He's there at the behest of the true king of kings. And we too are in a very similar position with God's law. We're not above the law. It's true, as we were even considering this morning briefly, that God's uh, Christ's redemption uh, releases us from the, the curse of the law, but it doesn't release us from the law of God. We're still bound to it. God's law especially the moral law, the ceremonial law, it's a different issue, but especially God's moral law is still binding to us. It's still there for us to, to obey. We know that it's not a standard by which we earn salvation, for by the works of the law, says Paul, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet, God's law is good. God law, God's law is perfect. God's law is fundamental for us. We are not antinomian that reject God's law. Or we shouldn't be. There are some who believe themselves to. To be, but as Christians, the, the law should draw us near to God, should point us and, 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 and direct our path uh, in, the, in the ways of righteousness that God has called us to walk on. God's law is good. It is free for, freeing for us. I know it sounds weird to say that God's law is actually freeing us. How can something that restricts us be, be free, uh, freeing for us? Well, I'll give you an example. We don't use it these days as much as before because we have GPSs on our phones and everywhere. But you remember when everyone used to have multiple maps in their, in their glove box, in their car? You might say that a map is restrictive, that a map uh, constrains your decisions, that, if you, that a map uh, uh, is, uh, is, 
is oppressive because it tells you exactly where you are and it tells you exactly the road that you need to take to get where you want to go. And in fact, you, you might be rebellious and not want to do it, but that's your problem. Because if you are uh, truly looking at the map the way you should, you would call the map as something that frees you. Frees you from the problem of, of getting lost. Frees you from the problem of not knowing where you are or how to get where you want to go. That's what God's law does. It's a map. It's not restrictive if you see it as it truly is, as something that directs us. It actually frees us from the, the curse of being lost, from the curse of, uh, uh, of wandering away. It, it directs us. It guides us. That's what God's law is. That's how it frees us. We do not keep the law to earn freedom, but we are, because we have been freed, we keep the law. We, so that we continue to enjoy the freedom that was purchased for us. So that we don't come back and, and uh, as we were considering this morning, morning uh, come back and, and become slaves to sin again. God's law is that precious thing. There's a, a whole chapter, the biggest chapter in the Bible is written about the beauties and the wonders of God's law. I, I could open in Psalm 119 at random at this moment and read just a couple of verses and they would perfectly illustrate what I'm saying. Because it is what Psalm 119 is all about. The point of God's law is to keep people free from sin. Is to keep people free in purity of life, in holiness of desires, in noble speech, in absence of bitterness. So, or Psalm 19 even. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple wise. For us, brothers and sisters, if for us as God's people to not have God's word, God's law, God's precepts, it would be something that we would shudder and, and call out like, Peter, where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we find the words of eternal life? It would be a terrible curse, not a moment of joy, if we were released from the law, it would be a curse for us. And yet I have to finish, brethren, because uh, we still have the Lord's Supper to take. Let me just point this out uh, as a way of preparing us for the Lord's table as well. The people called out, long live the king. They, this was their king. The king they asked for. Saul, in fact, means the one asked for. And what we're meant to see in all the shortcomings, uh, the significance of this event, what we're meant to see in all the shortcomings of Saul is to leave this sense of deep yearning for something better. That's the point, and that's what we see throughout the history of, the, uh, of, uh, of Israel from this point onwards up until Malachi and those 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist comes. That's the point. There is this growing sense of need as the monarchy becomes more and more corrupt, more and more uh, distant and rejects more and more the, 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 the precepts of God. There's this yearning on the part of the prophets as it descends the yearning ascends you get to Daniel and Daniel is, is in captivity there's no longer a king over Israel but there's this sense in Daniel when he sees the ancient of days the son of man the king to come and the reality is that the king came the king of kings the lord of lords he entered Jerusalem on, on that on that on that day 
riding on a, on a, on a donkey. And we're meant to see the contrast where, where Saul failed. Christ is, is the true king of kings. Where Saul was hiding in the baggage, Christ reveals himself as the perfect son of God. The king, the, the son of David that was to come. As the, the people acclaimed uh, Saul as this uh, guy, uh, physically speaking, there is no one like him among the peoples. They were looking at the outward. The truth is that he was rotten on the inside. But here is Christ. And yes, outwardly speaking, there's nothing to commend him, as Isaiah says. But on the inside, he is perfect. Even Pontius Pilate, at, at his judgment, he has to say there was no guilt in him. He could find no, uh, no guilt in him. He was perfect. As Hebrews describes him, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And though Saul's election or Saul's uh, rise to kingship was truly a mark of God's judgment upon the people, Christ's rise to kingship is not a mark of judgment upon the people. It is a mark of mercy. It wasn't, God, it wasn't an expression of God's wrath against sin as it was with Saul. It was an expression of God's grace giving the remedy for sin. Presenting Christ as the one who was put forward for the propitiation by his blood that we will in a moment... Uh, drink as a symbol in that wine as a propitiation by his blood and yes some of us receive him like Saul was received we acclaim him we 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 crown him with many crowns we sing of his of his glory and there are some who reject it some rebels or as the AV has it, some worthless fellows, some, some sons of Belial. I think that's how the AV has it. Uh, that's literally what he says there. And they ask, how can this man save us and despise him and, and brought him no presents? The com yes, just like Saul, the coming of Christ divided the world. But for us who have known him for us who have seen his glory we proclaim don't we long live the king what then shall we say to him seeing that he is the one who excels above all others seeing that his glory is incomparable that there are none among the sons of man that compares to the worth and glory uh, and majesty of this son of, of God brothers and sisters this bread and this wine represents just that and although God in his anger gave Saul to to the Israelites, God in his mercy gave Christ to us. That's a representation of his mercy. And if you are Christ's, 
And if you're living in obedience to him day by day, you're welcome to partake of this table. Because his reign will never fail. And one day, soon, very soon, as that uh, chorus says, we, we're going to see the king. But one day, soon, truly soon, we will sit around the table again before his presence. We'll be welcomed into this installed um, kingdom visible to everyone and his reign will be forever and ever and no longer the church militant as we are will militate further because we'll be the church victorious we'll be the church at rest with him in glory that's what the bread and the wine speak of of his victory past of his victory present and of his victory in eternity when we will finally be in his presence forever and ever singing his praises glorified